Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And uh, we are in overtime. We are in overtime now. And uh, that's what we do after we get off of the radio. We get rid of those pesky folks on the radio. And uh, our, our guest for overtime... Really excited about this is Sam Cedar. Have we got Sam Cedar online now? I'm I'm here. I think Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Sam is the host of the Majority Report. Uh, I think probably most everybody uh, knows who Sam Cedar is. Um, And uh, he has COVID right now. How are you do? How are you feeling right now, Sam? Uh, I'm feeling better than I have in about a week, to be honest with you. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the mend. I, I first got symptoms, uh, I guess, a week ago, uh, Friday, yesterday. And um, when I woke up last Saturday morning, I was testing and I tested negative. I got a PCR that day and um, still negative. Felt crappy through the night, coached the baseball team Sunday morning, fortunately outside. And I was at, uh, you know, a first base coach for most of that time. So it wasn't, you know, terribly close to the kids, fortunately. And, um, a day later on Monday, I tested positive. So, uh, but it's been pretty rough, but I'm, I'm feeling uh, much better these days. Thanks. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and that's, uh, it's definitely a bummer that uh, I know that you've been, you know, super careful with, uh, Trying not to catch the COVID. It's honestly crazy that I haven't yet um, being being around so many folks. Um, I guess I, I do get to work from home most of the time, so that's probably been a big part of it. But uh, uh, but yeah, I'm really glad that you're feeling better. Uh, glad you were feeling well enough to join us today. And Thanks for what me. I um, what I reached out to you for to talk about is I, I was I'm interested in talking to you about Air America. Um, this uh, it was a you know liberal talk radio kind of thing in the early 2000s and one of the things that you talk about a lot when you talk about air america is, is the mismanagement of it by the people at the executive level so um uh, can you just explain for explain for the people who don't know you know there are a lot of people who probably don't even know what air america is can you talk to people about like what Amer- air america was and Talk to us about why it ended up failing. In the um, in the early aughts, there was like an, a growing awareness of the power of right wing radio uh, throughout the country, um, and I mean that that that. <clears throat> I mean, I think there would have been a, a growing awareness of it for for years. I mean, the Rush Limbaugh, I think, launched in eighty eight. I think it was. Um, and really made his his name during the Clinton years and had become, in, in many respects, um, one of the most sort of influential voices in the Republican Party. I don't think it was acknowledged as such at the time, but I think those who sort of were paying attention understood that and weren't sort of like trying to convince themselves of otherwise. And we certainly can see that 10, 15, 20 years later. But um, – 
And so there was a lot of talk about doing this. In fact, in in the run up to the Iraq war, um, I was a I was in show business. I was uh, I think I was uh, directing a show with Gary Busey and um, uh, acting in sitcoms. And um, but even I was very aware of just sort of the absence of any type of like pushback in the in, in the run up to the Iraq war. And uh, one night, a friend of mine who had a um, really well-known show on a community radio station in New Jersey on WFMU, a guy named Tom Sharpling, invited me over to take over two hours of his show on a Tuesday night and do what was the first majority report. Um, And John Benjamin, who voices the intro for the majority report, now has had (laughs) a lot of success, completely um, unassociated with that. Uh, came over and did the intro live. I invited Janine Garofalo, who I ended up uh, going to, you know, working with on Air America to be a guest. Um, and that was in the run up to the Iraq war. I think it was in February of 2003. So there was a real awareness. I mean, and like I say, I was in, in, in show business. And if I was aware of the absence of, of any type of like media that was promoting um, any perspective other than sort of like the, the, the centrist or right wing uh, perspective on mass media. It wasn't, um, you know, that, that that sense was in the air. And then in um, 2004, maybe it was late 2003, uh, I got a call from Janine Garofalo, who said that she'd been asked to join this um, left wing liberal talk radio network uh, network uh, that was forming called Air America. Um, Al Franken was asked to be on it and was basically the flagship show at noon. Uh, Mark Marin was asked to be on it. He did the morning show. Uh, Rachel Maddow was uh, on it at first as a producer uh, with Liz Winstead and Chuck D. They had a show. And Janine and I did a show um, in the evening. And also Randy Rhodes, who had been an actual talk radio, AM talk radio host, mm-hmm. I think she was really the the only one who was really like a true radio professional uh, and knew what they were doing. Uh, she did like the three to six uh, slot Eastern. And then uh, Mike Malloy followed us at night. And I raised that because um, I know you want to talk about how, you know, the the if there is an opportunity to do radio again, and he was on a network at the time called IE America, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure exactly what that stands for, but it was owned by the UAW and it was only on a couple of stations, I think. Um, and I, I think there may be, you know, a model uh, associated with that, 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 that can be replicated. But so Air America launched, it was, uh, it got a massive amount of publicity because there was nothing like it that had ever been. It was the first radio network that was trying to launch within 30 years. Um, and sadly, <clears throat> the guy who had launched it was a bit of a, um, well, I mean, there are some people, I, mean, I want to be careful about this. There are some people who said that he had psychological issues or some people who just said he was just um, – you know, a, a bit of a, a hustler, as it were. Uh, but he never had the money or the capitalization he claimed he did. And within several months, 
all the bills came due and it was clear he didn't have the money. Uh, then there was another sort of interim ownership team that came in and a new CEO. And this happened over the course of five years. Uh, we had, I think, five different ownerships and maybe six different CEOs uh, during that time, including a period of time in, in Chapter 11 where the station sort of operated on its own, which was oddly, I think, the most successful period of time that took place. And I think there's also maybe sort of like a, a hint at a model there as well. Um, but it was, in terms of numbers, in terms of ratings, um, pretty successful. I know that at least our ratings in New York and L.A. Uh, for the, the evening show that we had, we were beating Laura Ingram and Mark Levin because at one point we were over two different time slots, I think. And uh, into seven to ten and we moved to six to nine and we had. We were beating some of the biggest names in radio in New York. Uh, some areas <coughs> we would do better than others. <coughs> Excuse me, that COVID's still lingering a little bit. And um, and I know like Franken, at a time where there was no streaming technology, <coughs> was getting up to like 30 or 40,000 people streaming him simultaneously. And this is before YouTube, before streaming, uh, streaming him on real audio. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. And so... Um, <clears throat> that's the um you know that's basically what air america was that so that's you know that's really amazing the you know having 30 to 40,000 people streaming him not you know not even counting the people who are who are listening and that's in on any radio. given 5 minutes wow. any given 5 minutes uh it was measured by a 5 minute increments i at one point i was the uh, editor-in-chief of the website. And so I had <coughs> access to this uh, information. And um, for that time, it was it was astonishing. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so the, uh, you know, why do you feel like then, um, you know, the the narrative basically of, of liberal talk radio is, is that, oh, it, it's not going to work. There's no way that it can work. You can't finance this model. Um, the, it, it, it just, it, it just doesn't work. People don't want to pay for, for liberal talk radio. People don't want to listen to it, but the ratings were there. And, you know, so why did it, you know, wh- what was the reason then? And, and I think you, you pointed to it. It, it was, it was management, right? I mean, there was no radio at that time was essentially there was two different types of well, three different types of talk radio, sports talk radio, um, Spanish talk radio and not political talk radio, but right wing talk radio. And each of those um, those genres have a different ad base. There was no one in the radio business who understood where our value lay. And it in, in laid in two places, and I can give you two stories that 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 um, that illustrate this. Very early in Air America's history, I can't. I, two thousand, maybe it was two thousand four, maybe it was two thousand five. There was a strike by the. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it was the Rockettes, 
at uh, uh, Rockefeller Center. And they were going nowhere. It was, it, was, it was a tough strike. They couldn't get management to sit down at the table. They ran like two ads on Air America. And they, the, the, the impact of those ads was so great that management immediately contacted the uh, union that represented the Rockettes and said, we will sit down with you and give you this concession and that concession before we even sit down under the one condition that you pull the ads. And for those of us who were sort of like, you know, who understood this dynamic, we were like, this is, we, we have just found the power of, hmm. of, this, of this network, which is we are talking to the activist base. Like we have the ability to move the needle. This is the one place you can go if you want to reach these people. There may not be the same numbers that has been built because, you know, we were just starting out that, that you might get with a uh, right-wing talk radio. But we are talking to people who have a deep, deep connection to this. And um, we should be going to every single union in the country and, and saying, like, you know, we have found your people. If you need to reach them, this is how you reach them. Mm-hmm. And it, th- that completely made no sense to the sales force and the management because they – none of this meant anything to them. They had never sold an ad to a union. They had never, they were, they were never talking to this type of audience. Uh, So they were unable to monetize uh, the value of what we were putting out there in terms of the numbers. And on top of which they were also, you know, radio people who with all due respect to radio people, they're a lot more savvy now about this, but at the time they were completely moronic when it came to the value the idea of having an audience that was willing to pay for things like podcasts. Um, at one point, you know, I mentioned I was uh, the editor in chief of the uh, of the website, and uh, sometime around two thousand seven, I want to say, um, Tom Hartman came onto the um, onto the program and um, uh, onto the network and. He had made a deal, or I couldn't remember exactly what the details of it, but but the long and short of it was there was a website selling his podcasts for, I can't remember what the number was, but they were generating thousands of dollars a month. Um, and, and for that time, you know, understand, there's no Patreon, there's no, this is all... Right. Some individual who is smart with tech, who's figured out how to create this type of thing. There was no advertising associated with it. And I think, I think the number was something like, uh, generating over a hundred thousand dollars a year. And which at that time was a lot of money for us. I mean, and, um, and I would go to management and say, you just need to send this guy a letter and say, stop and desist or, or even better because you can't seem to create the apparatus. Tell them like, you're no longer selling our stuff for with, you know, without cost, <clears throat> we're going to split it with you. Whatever the, whatever the, the split would be. <clears throat> but management was allergic to this. Hmm. And just did not think they wanted to be in that business, which was absurd. Um, 
And so there was, I mean, those were the two sort of biggest illustrations <coughs> of the failure of, the, of, of, of management at different times to understand yeah, where mean, the value lay. Do you feel like that's because this is I, I feel like this is something that, that, that we talk about on the show a lot is that, you know, the people who do the work know how to do the work. And basically, if the boss will get out of the way, we can we can get it done. How, do you feel like that? And, and you know, the retort to, to some criticisms of CEO pay is that they're just, you know, they're just worth that much. Basically, you know, Elon Musk is worth billions of dollars. Like he's just that smart. He's that valuable to the company. Jeff Bezos is that valuable to the company. The uh, things of things like that. I mean, do you feel like that is the mismanagement of Air America? I mean, do you feel like that is illustrative of, you know, broader trends and and broader problems of organizing industries in such a top-down way, in a way where the people who are actually doing the work have the least amount of say? Well, uh, I mean, I I'm not sure if I can draw how broad of a, uh, you know, a conclusion I can draw from this one experience at Air America. But I can tell you this, that um, one, we had in this country incredibly successful industries and companies through the 50s and the 60s where you did not have this type of uh, pay disparity. I mean, there's just like, it's not, we, we, we only need to look to our own history uh, to know that, the idea that there is a CEO that is worth a hundred times more to a company than any individual worker. Uh, otherwise the company is not going to be successful. We know that's not, we know that's not true because we simply have to look in our own history to see that we, we can have industries that grow, uh, you know, um, exponentially uh, without that type of dynamic. One thing that I do that, that, that I like to the extent that I feel like I can generalize from Air America that I saw, and it is one of the few corporate settings that I have ever worked in, is that um, the executives were working on behalf of themselves. They, they were not working on behalf of Air America. They were working on behalf of themselves. And sometimes that aligned with the interests of Air America, but far more often than not, those interests did not align. And, um, and, and so they would do things that would enrich themselves. And uh, a, a perfect example of this is, um, so the shows had political people on them. Like they were either really interested in politics or activists, or had come from sort of like the the political world. Um, and at one point early on, my uh, my producer, who has gone on to to work for Bernie Sanders and um, as a senior policy advisor, is now uh, working for the Labor Department. Uh, worked for Harry Reid at one point. Uh, approached me and said, hey, I've built this relationship with this company called Blue Digital. This was prior to the Obama years. It was, uh, they were a nascent um, 
sort of like demo uh, demographic uh, targeting internet agency. And I, I've, I've developed some relationships there and they want to offer their services to help us find our audience. And, and he said, I know that we're planning to do a big mailer because that's what radio did. They would send mailers in the uh, mail. And this way we can make sure that our yield, who we're sending the email, the, the, the uh, mailer to is more likely to be an audience member of Air America. And we went to the management at the time and said, look, we have the ability, if you're going to send out half a million um, mailers and your average, you know, yield of hitting a potential Air America listener would be, let's say, 10% or let's say 20%. Well, these guys can probably like triple that yield where 60% or 75% or 80% or 90% of the people who are going to be looking at that mailer are going to be potential Air America listeners because they have data that about what these people read, you know, uh, what's um, magazine subscriptions they get. They have voter file data, on and on and on and on. And it would have made that mailer so much more powerful, even to the point where you could you could say to these people, if you get an Arbitron uh, listing, keep us in mind because they have an activist mentality and they want to help the cause. And the the radio guy was like, ah, now that's all right, because he wanted to go to his vendor who he had worked with for years before. And he knew that after Air America, he would work with again, who had the ability to maybe help him out for his next job because radio men are radio people are journeymen. And um, and so they they bagged it. We, we could have gotten those services for free. They put out that mailer at the cost of a half a million dollars. And our ratings were actually lower the following uh, quarter. It did, did less than nothing. And, wow. you know, uh, the, the reason why these guys would operate the way they did is because they were looking to maintain their relationships in an industry in which they knew they would be looking to these people for a job down the road. Or for a favor, and um, and 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 I could I could literally walk through every one of those radio executives who did that very same thing, and 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 it accomplished exactly what they wanted, which was this is a way this is a you know I have no idea I've taken this job, I have no idea what I'm doing I can't figure out how to monetize it I don't know this world I voted for Mitt Romney I may have given money to Mitt Romney with some of these people. Um, and, uh, and this is, you know, that's the, the, the type of sort of mentality that they would have. And, um, the, they were out for themselves and that notion of executives now in America operating their businesses as a cottage industry for themselves on the private level, you see that. On a public level, you see it in the form of the way that they get compensated through stock options. 
all of these changes that took place in the 80s where you could uh, buybacks were legal, where stock uh, compensation gets taxed at a different rate than the compensation for you to actually work. Um, these ins- created incentives for the, the executives to do things that were not necessarily in uh, the best interests of the company long term, certainly not in the best interests of the community long term, certainly not in the best interests of the workers long term. Um, and like I say, not even in the best interests of the company long term, but was was in their what was in their best interests with a two to five year horizon when their stock um, uh, interests are going to value. Because I mean, look, if, if, if it's, it's basically like a side bet, it's a cottage industry that they're operating. That is, you know, a barnacle on the side of this ship that is a company and a community and a workers, however you want to look at that. But that barnacle is worth, you know, worth millions of dollars to them personally. And in some cases, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And and it's just misaligned incentives. Right, right. So um, if Air America was a worker co-op, it would have succeeded is the, uh, is well, the message, right? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, in, in all honesty, that like, you know, the, the when it, we were in bankruptcy and mm-hmm. each show was simply operating in um, – in the way that it knew best, uh, that is when we had the lowest burn rate and the highest relative revenue rate. Wow. And I, you know, look, I don't know how you would necessarily operate that as a workers co-op uh, without like where you would get that initial financing from, to be honest mm-hmm. with you, because it, it takes a tremendous amount of money up front. Right. Or at least pretending you have a tremendous amount of money uh, uh, for an extended period of time. And um, but there are mechanisms, you know, uh, the, you know, I mean, if the government was to provide low cost loans to, you know, there are mechanisms. Um, and. And I don't know, I mean, there would be issues like there would be in any enterprise, but I am. I, I am convinced that there is a way to do that where it is much more decentralized and the, and, and the workers who are working there have a lot more power. Um, and the, a, a co-op, it and seems I mean, to, to your me. your point that, that, that they would be more even financially successful because they, you know, they know their audience. They know what their audience wants. They know the people uh, that, that can reach their audience. You know, I think that, uh, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's a, a pretty powerful, you know, rebuttal to the idea that, you know, we, um, that management always knows best and that they're like so super smart and uh, well, super I mean, important and management special. clear had no idea. In fact, the industry right. itself didn't have any idea. The, the biggest, mis- the, the biggest problems that, you know, the ownerships had is they came in and they listened only to that management consultant class. Uh, because they had no ideas on their own. And so they simply went to the person with the nicest watch and, uh, you know, and, and that was basically it. Sounds like a lot of our politicians, frankly. Yeah. 
Yep. I mean, some of them were our politicians or hope to be, uh, frankly. Um, but it, yeah, it was a real it was a real shame in that instance. And and I think there's an opportunity. You know, I don't know if I you know. Uh, I, I think there is value in enterprises like unions, um, you know, who have this type of money, maybe engaging in something like this. Um, and, you know, small cooperatives that, 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 that can do this, you know, certainly with online sort of like entities. Um, mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, radio, right wing talk radio is heavily, heavily subsidized uh, by the right. It just is. Um, right. And I don't know radio as a, as a, as a national industry um, is hugely viable um, in and of itself because the return on investment for those radio stations is pretty low at this point. The, the amount of, of expenditure that you have you know, and it's got a lot more competition from uh, the internet. But um, it, it, we need something like this. I mean, we, um, you know, regardless of whether you're talking about, um, you know, the the center to the left, you know, uh, liberal um, uh, politics, or um, you know, more. Uh, specifically left wing politics need simply needs to be able to compete um, in this uh, area. And, and that's why, you know, that I've had people kind of kind of push back at me, you know, uh, like, why are you why are you getting on the radio? And and I know that we're a little over 20 minutes. So so, you know, feel free to, um, you know, let us know that 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 you've got to go and and i i, I want to be respectful of your time don't want to keep you very uh you, you my know, coughing longer, fit but... will will my <laughs> coughing fit will be will, will determine it <laughs> right. well but you know there there are folks that are like why are you paying so much money to you know to be on the radio like that it's a dying audience it's you know there you, you should just just do a podcast and and you know obviously you being on the radio versus you being on on YouTube now is is different because it was like 20 years ago that you were on the radio but you know you would talk about having authors in skyrocketing their book to the New York Times bestseller list by doing an interview with them and you just don't have the same you you just don't even if you're a successful podcast you just or yeah. or, radio, or or like YouTube show or, or Twitch stream you know you just don't reach the same amount of people and it's not as geographically centralized because you know y'all have like a million subscribers on on YouTube and and you get like tens of thousands of people watching every single day but that's you know tens of thousands of people across the United States and Canada and the UK whereas you know like my local. Uh, you know, the local talk radio station that we are on, one of them, you know, the the morning show host, he has probably 10,000 people listening to him within a 50 square mile area. Yeah. You know? Yep. And that's like, that's a, that's a big difference. And, and, and you're just going to reach people who are not looking for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, that at the end of the day, that's the, the value of, of radio is you're going to reach people who are not looking for you. They're going to stumble on you. They're going to, they're going to have been listening to a different show on that, uh, on that station, or they're just going to be, um, you know, checking the dial because they don't want to listen to the ad on the other station. And Mm -hmm. you're going to reach people who, 
um, you simply cannot reach online because even with, you know, YouTube, there will be right wingers who come across our, our, our channel, but it's because they're looking to, to hate watch. And, and, and there is some like, there's some version of this, which we try and do by getting into other people's algorithm so that if you're a fan of, you know, this right winger or that right winger that we pop up Mm -hmm. because we have engaged them enough that we can break through their algorithm. And that's the way that we can find other uh, people. But there's nothing like radio to reach and particularly the the working class, because radio still remains the one medium that uh, has the most presence in the most homes and lives of, of Americans. And it is the cheapest medium in which to listen. Um, and, and so you're going to, you know, you're, you're reaching people who are, you know, they've got their radio on at the, the, the job site when they're building or when they're, you know, uh, um, working with a, a group of people, or maybe they're at, um, I don't know, uh, you know, a store and right. work in retail and, and, and you're just going to reach people that you can't reach by other means. And it's not mm-hmm. the most, um, it's not the way to get, um, it's not the way to get rich, but, right. uh, it is, it is a great way to, um, further your, your, your political agenda. Mm-hmm. And, that's something that we struggle with as far as trying to build an online audience because we don't want to be like we don't want to be driven by the clicks necessarily but we do want to bring people to the channel so that they see the other stuff and 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 you know I'm thinking about there was there was one time a while back that Jimmy Dore attacked the Chicago Teachers Union and I was like okay this is a good this is a good chance for me to talk about Jimmy Dore. And and so we did and and Glenn Greenwald talked about unions last week and so we're we're going to be talking about that <laughs> in a little bit. He thinks that Glenn Greenwald thinks that wokeness is the reason. The the actual the quote from his article in his Substack is just it's really fascinating because it's so so stupid. Um the excessive engagement in politics is the number 1 the number one obstacle to a robust American labor movement. What? And so we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. But we talked, uh, you know, we, we talked about Jimmy Dore. And, you know, a lot of our videos get 50 to 100 views or something. The clips do. And we talked about Jimmy Dore like once. And that clip got 2,000 views. And I'm like, right. Why are you watching this drivel? Like, <laughs> what? I, but, I mean, but look. Also, that brought those, fo- you know, we saw an increase on the other views yeah. on our channel after we got those views from that clip. So, you know, I don't. How do you how do you like um, I, balance that kind of stuff? I mean, um, I, I certainly am aware of that dynamic. And, um, you know. I, I got very, I got very lucky insofar as that I had come off a of radio and I had had an email list and, and, and so I had a, an audience that existed and I didn't have to, and I got to a certain, you know, critical mass, um, early and, 
I mean, I, I we have the same challenge, you know, right now, particularly in this era of our politics um, on our channel. And, you know, we still put out um, videos and, you know, we, we, we do we cut up our videos, as you know, like and I think probably you do it in the same way. I mean, I still yeah. sort of like base the show as if it was a radio show. And then so our videos um we, we have a disadvantage right there in terms of like the YouTube world, as it were, uh, because we don't create discrete videos that live in and of themselves. Um, you know, I don't I don't say like, oh, here's this topic. I'm going to say this, this and this and run the video and then and then do that. And then the video ends. And then I'm going to move on to the next video. I don't do that. That's what most YouTube shows do. We do essentially a, a, a you know, free ranging show and then clip it afterwards. And that is not, you know, that's that's not uh, terribly uh, effective for YouTube. Um, in terms of like content, I, I just continue to just do what I have always done prior to the existence of YouTube, which is um, I do show, you know, topics that I, I find interesting and I don't really care that much as to, you know, how much uh, traction they get. Um, certainly we, we target certain right wingers and certain, um, you know, uh, like uh, people who are just, we think are, putting out garbage, um, both for, you know, fun and I enjoy it and this and that, but also with an eye of like, like I said, if we can get into their algorithms and, and pick up a couple of, of, of viewers who, you know, we can sort of show them a different perspective on this stuff, we'll do it. Um, so I, all I would do is I, you know, I would just, Make sure that you're conscious of of not going for material that because you know it's going to get clicks. Um, I think you got to just, you know, continue to do what you think is uh, important stuff. And when there is, you know, something that allows you like, you know, Glenn Greenwald writes that unions shouldn't be involved in politics. <laughs> I don't know really what that means, but. Um, it gives you the opportunity to tell a story about how unions should be involved in politics. And, you know, if, if, uh, using a Greenwald as the peg for that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, thing gets you more views than, 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 you know, all well and good. Uh, but, you know, you just got to keep, just going to make sure that you're not falling into some type of trap where you're just doing this, you know, uh, right. for, exclusively for the, the, the clicks. And, and, and like I say, you know, I, I'm lucky insofar as we can, our YouTube numbers can, um, you know, can have, and we can still, um, we, we can still uh, function and hang on and, uh, you know, some years are, uh, are are leaner than other years, and um, 
that's that's okay. I mean, for us, because we've hit a certain, you know, we've got five or six employees and, um, you know, like I say, some years are, 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 are leaner than others. And, uh, for the most part, we haven't had to, to, when we go through lean years, you know, react to it in a way that, uh, uh, cuts people out. And, you know, part of the, part of the reason why I did that Peacock stuff for a year, uh, was just to sort of get a cushion for what I knew would be a couple of lean years, just because, you know, sadly, um, people at least, a chunk of people from the center to the left, unless there's, you know, a Donald Trump or George W. Bush type of figure, um, they, they go back to brunch, you know, yeah. essentially. It's so, the problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have, um, we have a caller on the line. I think he was wanting to to talk to you um adam could you if you've got just just a couple more minutes sure uh, sure. sam could you bring this uh bring the caller in adam i will certainly do my best to do that okay ben if you're if you're listening i don't know if adam you know we're not we're not professionals (laughs) yeah yeah, uh, like like sam's crew right uh but i do believe we have the caller on the line yeah, can you uh, can you hear us, caller? Hello. Well, that's live radio, folks. Um, we did he, did we drop him? No, the caller's still there. Uh, I'm not sure why it's not going through. Uh, but I did there. you like bring? <laughs> I thought I heard something just there. Uh, that was uh, that was the clean feed apparently that was still going through. But yeah, you can um, let's try this now. Oh, hey, hey. There, you go. there we are. Hey, I have a question for your guest. My name is Sam. Uh, my name is uh, sorry. I'm really nervous. The first time long. Jesus Christ. Seth and I, I'm a recent college graduate. I'm getting into labor organizing. I'm just wondering what lessons we can learn from uh, the failures of the guest generation. As a baby boomer, I know uh, in a lot of ways they failed labor, um, the labor movement. And I'm just wondering if he has any special insight um, into what we can learn from his generation on account of his age. (laughs) Um. Were you prepared well, to get roasted? I didn't know that was coming. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I I was I was not prepared for that. It's uh, I I I hate to uh, ruin the the joke, but that was Ronald Reagan, who is a caller into uh, the Majority Report, who knows that I know nothing about the baby boomer generation um, except for what I've read, because I am not, in fact, a baby boomer. Baby boomers were born. I think uh, the the oldest baby boomer was born in 1964, I believe. Maybe it was 65. But I was born in 66, so I am Generation X. So I don't I don't have an answer for that <laughs> fake caller. I'm sorry you guys had to had to go through that. Well, you know, I got to uh, figure out how to put the collar on the air. There you go. So it, was it, was learning, a good, it was a learning experience. We have all and, learned something. And, Absolutely. Uh, 
it's unbelievable what uh, but, Ronald Reagan's family puts up with. That's all I can say. Sam, I did want to say before you get out of here that uh, I do remember listening to Air America Radio as a 10th grader in wow. Huntsville, Alabama, just desperate to find anything that wasn't George Bush and, and uh, the war machine. Uh, of course, I was disillusioned by the Iraq war like many young people and just searching for something. And so I do remember you and Randy Rhodes and Al Franken, and uh, it was like y'all in Democracy Now! was about the only media yeah. alternatives we had at the time. So yep. I, I give you a lot of credit and a lot of uh, your comrades a lot of credit for helping to blaze the trail of a independent left media that we have today that is so much more robust than anything I could have imagined back when I was in high school. It's there, there's there's stuff out there for everybody, and yep. um, I think that wouldn't happen without Air America and those other experiments to get us down the road. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, and I really appreciate the work you guys are doing. I think it's really important. I I, I would love to see more people, you know, even people who start off with podcasts, take it take do you know take it uh, to a local radio station for an hour uh, once mm-hmm. a week. It's it's obviously much uh a lot more work but uh i think that it's a it's a such a unique type of payoff and so unique to radio i really appreciate what you guys are doing and 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 good luck with it yeah thanks for your time sam i really appreciate it thank you. my pleasure sorry it took so long to work out appreciate it guys oh no worries Uh, we appreciate you uh going over (laughs) absolutely all right bye-bye now all right right. yeah so uh that was that was sam cedar and uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Enjoyed that collar there at the end too. Um, so uh, I alluded to this during our conversation with uh, with Sam, um, and this is something I, I was going to do it a little bit later. But since we've got so many um, Majority Report listeners, hello everybody! Thank you for yeah, thanks for joining. thanks for joining us. Since I've got so many of y'all um, <clears throat> listening, I, I'm going to bump this up. Because I think y'all are going to enjoy it. Um, Glenn Greenwald thinks that the reason that <laughs> that uh, union membership is in decline is because unions are just too woke. That's that's his that's his take, and that's what Batya Unger Sargon argued in Glenn Greenwald's Substack. To his approval and his claim that the piece is, quote unquote, extensively researched, despite the fact that the majority of the claims come from an interview with a union member who ran for school board as a Republican, (laughs) which is, you know, whatever, that's fine. And an American Compass survey, American Compass is a conservative media or a conservative like consulting firm that's ostensibly pro-union but they don't want unions to be involved in politics that purported to find quote that excessive engagement in politics is the number one obstacle to a robust labor movement so um let's go ahead and we can just we can just go (laughs) we can just go one by one on this that they they quoted a lot of people in this about the value of unions and about what their union has done for them and about or about how they there was this one guy who is a Democrat who it's funny that the only actual Democrat that they 
talked to in this in this piece is an example of what they say the unions do not do, right? So the only quote-unquote Democrat, the only left-type woke person that they talk to in this whole piece is a guy named Tanny, who, uh, who is a Democrat, but who makes a lot of efforts to reach out to his Republican members and, uh, and, and not alienate them and, and make sure that, you know, like they know that he's fighting for them just like he's fighting for the, the Democrat members or whatever. And like, so he is the only people, he's the only person that, that she talks to from this persuasion. And then she talks to some other people who talk about the value of unions generally. And then there's this one guy who's a Republican who ran for school board who said that um, his name is Jeff. He's a pipe fitter. And he says that unions are too woke. And he says in the this is a quote from the article. For example, in the pipe fitter trade, there's a tool called a nipple that connects different pieces of pipe. But as part of what Salovich sees as progressive pressures on leadership, the word nipple is now verboten. And if you're caught saying it, you'll get reprimanded by your boss. Which is insane. And she references nothing else to back this up other than the guy who said this. And so this is this is something that I'm like, there's no way this is true. And Dave Camper on Twitter, he found a pipe fitter contract, like a collective bargaining agreement that refers to nipples in the contract language, like how they're supposed to be used and things like this. And so this is the only like anecdote that she has that's very easily disproven that nipple is a verboten word in the International Union of Pipe Fitters and Allied Trades. I mean, this is just such a just such a silly thing to allege when you can just go and like talk to another pipe fitter. Like there there are like thousands of these people. Like just talk to another one. One more and they'll be able to tell you that this is nonsense. The other thing so that was one thing that she pointed to. The other thing that she pointed to is, like I said, an American Compass survey that found that they purported to find, like through research and polling and things, that from the American Compass survey, quote unquote, excessive engagement in politics is the number one obstacle to a robust labor movement. This is the results of the survey that they were pointing to. They commissioned a survey they got results from the results that I'm about to tell you. They concluded that excessive engagement in politics is the number one obstacle to a robust labor movement. Let's go. Number one, by a three to one margin, potential union members say they would prefer a worker organization that focuses only on workplace issues to one that is also engaged in national political issues. Okay. So here we've got a worker's preference for a worker organization that focuses on engagement about workplace issues. Okay, so we we have acknowledged, let's even stipulate this, that there are no issues with the polling, there's no issues with the way that the, the study was worded. Let's just, let's just stipulate all that. All we've got here is a preference for a way... An organization ought to run. Not saying 
I will not be a part of an organization that runs in a slightly different way. Not anything like that. It's just, this is a preference. Okay, let's go to the second one. When asked how important various activities are for a worker organization to pursue, potential union members assigned half their weight to collective bargaining and providing training and benefits versus 3% to politics. So here we've got just another expression of preference to which they said in their own, in in this study, the, the, the research, the survey is saying that 3% of a union's time ought to be devoted to national political issues. Okay, so we're just still, we're just lodging worker preferences. We're not talking about obstacles or anything like that. Let's go to number three. Only 35% of potential union members not already in a union said they would vote for one, which is roughly equal to the 34% who are undecided and the 31% who said they would vote no. The top reason for voting no is union involvement in politics. By contrast, fear of retaliation is the reason least cited for voting no. So here is something that may we could say that this is this is potentially an obstacle. Right? Here we've got something that's actually potentially an obstacle. But the only obstacle is that the people who have already decided that they're gonna vote no. Only 31% of the population, the people in, in this 31% that we're looking at, they have already decided, I am voting no. There's, I am voting no. That a plurality, not even necessarily a majority or a supermajority, but a plurality of the things that they're pointing to for a reason that they're going to vote no, this minority of workers, is that unions engage in politics. And, 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 and you know, frankly... If there's like 10 to 15 percent of workers who just will not vote for an organization that devotes some amount of time to advocating for the issues that their members care about on a national stage, like, is that actually the number one obstacle that workers face in this country? That, that workers face to organizing their workplace in this country? That's just insane. That's insane. Like getting those 10 to 15% of people to vote yes, that is simply not the most pressing issue for organized labor to address. It's simply not. It's simply not getting this minority of workers who are already predisposed to vote against a union Getting them on our side is simply not the top priority. If you're in a workplace and you're talking to one of these workers, I'm not saying to immediately write write them off. If you're in a union and you represent one of these workers, I'm not saying that you shouldn't represent them well. You should do both of those things. You should talk to both of them. You should talk to them if you're organizing your workplace and you should represent them well if you represent them in your workplace as a union steward or as an officer or as a staff representative, things like this. But getting those people to say to a random pollster that they're going to vote yes is is simply not the top priority, the, the number one obstacle to getting more union members in this country. It's simply not. It's simply not in a country where 
we have uh, <laughs> where where the government is telling rail workers that they can't strike, where Starbucks is firing barista after barista after barista for organizing their workplace, where Amazon is getting away with flagrant violations of labor law during elections. That is simply where it's difficult to even get a union election, where people don't know where to start, where people think that unions are illegal in their state. I still have people today who come to me who say, I thought unions were illegal in Alabama. Getting people who hate unions to vote yes, who think that unions should never get involved in politics, is simply not the number one obstacle to winning union elections. It's simply not. And to suggest that it is, is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Well, the thing that makes me suspect about this poll is that the top reason uh, was in unions involvement in politics and the last reason cited was retaliation. And I think that just doesn't match up with the real world experiences. Mm-mm. It certainly doesn't match up with my experiences trying to recruit people. Um Retaliation is is going to be a much bigger fear for folks to getting involved in a union or to bring a union in than, you know, the political candidates the union's donating to. And that's not to discount that that's a legitimate issue. You and I have talked about this on the show. We've talked with Hamilton Nolan on the show about uh, national unions and how they have been overly loyal to the Democratic Party at the national level. Uh, and often given these contributions with very little to show for it. Uh, I think those are all legitimate issues that we have to tackle. But, you know, the, the, the deck is stacked against bringing in a new union and the deck is stacked against having a powerful union where it already exists through a series of broken laws, through a series of reactionary judges, uh, through the sheer disparity in wealth and resources. I mean – when you have billionaires such as Jeff Bezos uh, and the companies they own, they can can blow millions of dollars in u- hiring union busting attorneys and fighting union campaigns, and it's chump change to them. It really it's it's meaningless to them. They you know Jeff can find that in his couch cushions. Right. So uh, yeah, I totally. I just don't see that as being a legitimate thing. There it it can be a problem. Uh, but the thing about the labor movement that is so, to me, so valuable and promising is that we can cut across political divides and unite workers around issues of, of real material interest. And that's been my experience. Yes, I've had tell pe- people tell me, no, I, I disagree with, you know, the union backing Hillary Clinton or I disagree mm-hmm. with them being pro-choice. Those are those are common things to hear in Alabama. Uh, but I've also had people who are Republicans and Democrats and, you know, folks independent of both of those all united on the same page to make their lives better and their coworkers' lives better. Right. I, I, you know, that's the potential of labor. So, you know, I, I think it's you're getting too far astray from what the labor movement can actually do. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's just, you know, it the the methodology for deciding this is absurd. Um, you know, and 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 you know, the it it's just so silly. She quotes an article uh, she quotes a union officer um in the article 
as well, who who he gives what he believes is the um, is the is a big reason for um, for for unions having difficulty starting and winning elections. And then she just goes on to to give her own prescription when she knows obviously knows nothing about like you would think that the people you know you would actually talk to the people who are organizing unions workers who are trying to form unions to figure out what the biggest obstacle is but no she's just going to go to right wing think tank David Rolfe founding president of Seattle based local 775 of SEIU and author of the fight for 15 the right wage for a working America explained. Sort of like if you were running to become mayor, but before you were allowed to be the mayor, you had to first fight to establish that there ought be a mayor at all, and then once you establish that there should be a mayor, then you find that your opponent is the only one with access to the electorate for eight hours a day, and that they've had a voter list for years, and you just get it six weeks before the election. And also, they have unlimited resources. Like, how do you hear that? And then, well, obviously, the way that you hear that and then go on to say wokeness is the reason that, that unions have declining membership. Wokeness is, is the reason. The, the way that you hear that and you offer this different prescription is because you've got an agenda that you want to you, – you just want to bash the left. Um, you want to bash unions, and you do that by ostensibly standing up for unions – and bashing the left, but really, what you're trying, what you're doing here, is undermining unions. Um, it's really disappointing. I because I remember some really good journalism coming from Glenn Greenwald years ago. Uh, you know, helping to break the stories about NSA surveillance, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's disappointing to see him kind of just become a troll on the internet. And it seems like that's sort of his shtick now is just fighting culture war stuff online. You know, maybe that's working for him. I don't know. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, we in the labor movement don't have a whole lot to, to glean from that. Yeah. Uh, our focus has to be meeting people where they are uh, and growing our coalition, growing our numbers. Uh, the hostile folks, there's always right. going to be hostile folks. If anything, our goal should be to get them from hostile to disengaged. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, focus on up- those folks that that are uh, hungry for a union. Are those folks who you know are on the fence? People that can be reached through real conversations and right. real relationships. Uh, and and last thing, and I'll move on. Uh, our dear friend Hayden Wright in the chat mentioned that. Guess what? You have to be involved in politics to some degree right. uh, as a union because. You are subject to politics. The folks who are writing the laws, uh, the folks who are allied with your bosses, uh, the the judges, the police, the legislators, Mm -hmm. school board members, you name it. You know, if you're not if you're totally disengaged from the electoral politics altogether. um, Yeah. You know, I think there there's an arena in which you're not. You're not bringing the power. Yeah. Right, right, right. And and that's not to say that that's for everyone. I know like IWW, right. I'm a proud member of IWW, they don't get involved in electoral politics. And I understand why. I don't support why they don't do that. Uh, but, you know, it takes I think it takes all types coming mm-hmm. at it from different angles to be effective. And if you really want your union to unions are the workers. So if workers are really actually if this if this actually was the number one issue. 
that workers, that potential union members, that union members themselves actually had with their unions, they could stop it. They could stop it because unions are the workers and they elect by some mechanism or another the people who make these decisions about whether or not to support this or that candidate. And by, by the way, you know, a lot of this, uh, a, a lot of this is, is misinformation about union dues going to politics. Uh, the things, when you hear about union, a union donated $100,000, a million dollars to this campaign or whatever, that doesn't come from union dues. That comes from a separate pot of money, a pack that the union has set aside for voluntary contributions from union members to contribute to their pack for explicitly they are contributing to this pot of money explicitly for political purposes. They know that that separate pot of money that they donate to their union's pack they know that all that's going to is politics and they donate to it voluntarily it's not part of their contracts it's not even in collective bargaining states nobody has to donate to their union packs you don't have right. to do that it's all voluntary so if you do that you're you, you know you're going in with your eyes wide open so people just like they just don't understand they just don't know or they want to misrepresent it but throw that tweet up from uh about from uh, uh, from that fella about who he would help forming a union in his workplace because this is actually the attitude um, the attitude that every single I have not ever met I've not ever met a union organizer that has an attitude that is different than that which is he said I would organize let's see let's go to that let's let me pull that tweet back up I would help my worst enemy form a union at their workplace if you're my worst enemy and you're being mistreated at work hit me up right on and that's exactly right like i do not know who glenn greenwald is talking about when we're talking about these people that are trying to and matt iglesias talking about unions need to to even represent folks who have traditional norms on gender or whatever they do like i don't know who they're talking about when they say these things. People do that. Union organizers do that. Union representatives do that. And if you don't think that they do, talk to some woke organizers. Talk to some socialist uh, union officers. Talk to communists who are representatives in their unions. And they will tell you that they will fight like hell for their conservative brothers and sisters but you're not going to know that if you just want to write an article about how wokeness is bad right so do better glenn do Do better better. glenn (laughs) and stop pretending Um, you know anything about the labor movement yeah Uh, yeah, because i I don't think you do yep yeah, there was there was another tweet that I didn't prep for for graphics that said uh, union organize something like union organizers don't need op ed writers telling us how to organize our workplaces and that's and that's exactly my uh, my thoughts on that. Um, so, uh, so you know, speaking of speaking of woke, um, Larry Fink, Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock. He owns homes in Manhattan, New York, New York, New York, North Salem, New York, and Vail, Colorado. Hmm. 
Uh, so he's definitely out of state, I think. We can agree on that. He has donated to Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, and John Kerry, among many, many, many others. Um, West Virginia's state treasurer has declined to continue using his investment firm BlackRock because of their quote-unquote woke and liberal politics, specifically around climate change. They're pushing companies to eliminate greenhouse emissions by 2050. Um, Or they were. I believe they've already started backtracking on that. Uh, Yeah, the state of Texas wasn't a fan uh, in the oil industry there, so... My understanding is they were already waffling on that, but they damn sure wanted to put it out there to make it yeah, look like yeah, they right. were uh, great stewards of the environment. Well, so, you know, I say all this to say that, 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 Adam, we would say Larry Fink is a person that Alabama Republican politicians would call an out-of-state liberal, right? Yeah, I would yeah, say I think they would say that, sure. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's you know, a reasonable characterization of what they would say about this Larry Fink character. Um, and that's really interesting because Larry Fink, as the CEO of BlackRock, which owns the largest share of Warrior Met Coal, which is the coal mining company that has refused for over a year to give the Brookwood coal miners a fair contract, Larry Fink would love nothing more than for Alabama politicians to help them in trying to break the strike. He would love it. He would love it if Alabama politicians issued injunctions, for example, that told Alabama coal miners when and where and how many and how and how loud they can or can't protest their boss. That they can't protest Warrior Matt Cole. That they can only have two people on a picket line. That they can't have anybody on a picket line for months. He would love that. He'd love maybe a little bit less than that. But he'd certainly still love for them to at least not do anything to help the striking Alabama coal miners. And he would love if politicians who saw politicians issuing these injunctions, he would love it if they just didn't step in. While these other people are maybe doing a little bit more explicit union busting on behalf of Warrior Met and BlackRock. And uh, what do you know? That is exactly what Alabama politicians are doing. Tommy Tuberville is reading Warrior Met press releases during Senate hearings. Richard Shelby is saying nothing. A Robert Bentley appointed Tuscaloosa County judge has restricted the right of the miners to speak and assemble. Still, to this day, they can only have two people on a picket line at one time. But again, here we go. Free speech is uh, the, the free speech wars on Twitter. Um, and Kay Ivey, our governor, who is the chief executive of the state, has said absolutely nothing about the strike. She has made no comments on it, despite the miners making a trip all the way out to Montgomery to speak to her. And that's a long, that's, you know, that's a drive from Brookwood, going to Montgomery to try to speak to your governor. And that was after months and months. I think they were seven or eight months on strike at that time. So anyway, it seems to me that Kay Ivey is basically doing exactly what liberal Larry Fink wants her to do. Which is exactly what she told Breitbart she would not do last week. Adam, let's throw that graphic up. Um, 
this is just amazing. She made a whole big hubbub about, I'm not going to let, I, I, I don't think I can do that. I, I'm not going to let out-of-state liberals tell me what to do. But she wasn't actually talking about standing up for working Alabamians against liberal bosses who want to cut their wages, standing up for working Alabamians against liberal New York private equity fund managers who are trying to destroy their union, who are trying to make their work unsafe, who are trying to bring in out-of-state scabs with taxpayer dollars through state trooper escorts. She's not talking about standing up for working Alabamians against liberals in that way. No, she was talking about standing up for the freedom of politicians to rile up resentment about queer Alabamians. That's her priority. It's disgusting, really. The way they have demonized transgender people, especially this last legislative session, these last few weeks, uh, it's the classic divide-and-conquer approach they are taking to the population of Alabama. It's a tried-and-true tactic. They've been doing it here in this state uh, for many, many years. They've done it since we've been a state for 200 years. They've been doing this divide and conquer and and trying to get some of us to target others of us. Uh, It's it's really disgusting. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm worried about our friends and neighbors who are LGBT and how how this is going to affect them psychologically, uh, physically. Uh, in terms of actual physical risk by the way these politicians are riling folks up about them. Uh, you know, you've got Kay Ivey putting out these disgusting ads and Tim James putting out these disgusting ads. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it just, it's it's gross and it's irresponsible. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it, it just really, it's 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 disturbing to me. The, the they would use children as political footballs children i mean because they're talking about kids here kids they want to deny medical care to kids they want to deny medical care for these families and demonize them and target them and and you know for her to pose as some kind of uh rebel by doing so that she's standing up to the powers that be no You're doing you. You are the powers that be, and you're doing exactly what y'all have always done, which is try to divide the working class against itself to target more marginalized people. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll stop now before yeah. I say things I, I'll regret. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if out of state liberals want you to respect people who are different than you, not gonna do that. Uh, but if out-of-state liberals want to steal money from your constituents, if out-of-state liberals want to put your constituents in danger, if out-of-state liberals want to destroy the organization that they have formed to fight for themselves on the job, you'll do exactly, exactly what these out-of-state liberals want you to do. That is the position of... Damn near every Alabama politician out there right now. It's disgusting. It's really disgusting. Um, in better news, though, 
in better news, um, you know, I, I don't know if we covered this on the show before, but a while back, the NLRB general counsel expressed an interest in resurrecting the Joy Silk Doctrine. On Monday, she filed a brief. Uh, on Monday, she filed a brief in a case called CMEX, requesting that the board use that case to reinstate the doctrine, which is which is really really cool. She you know she first she and uh, she she released a memo saying that okay you know I'm I'm probably going to you know this is something that that I'm interested in doing um, and. Uh, and and now she's actually filed a brief in a case to the board, which the board has to decide whether or not they're going to bring this doctrine back. But she's actually she's she's making moves now, and um, unfortunately, a lot of folks in the audience are saying, "What is Joy Silk? What is the Joy Silk doctrine?" Uh, but don't worry. That's what we're here for. Um, if you want some more information than what we go into here, uh, I'd recommend reading this article on Brandon Magner's Substack, Why Labor Law Needs Joy Silk Bargaining Orders. Uh, a lot of what we're going to be going over today is from that article. To explain Joy Silk, though, let's first circle back to the NLRA and understand one of the protections that it gives working people. Section 8A5 of the NLRA states that it is illegal to, quote, refuse to bargain collectively with the representatives of his employees that has been chosen by a majority of the workers. Further, from Brandon's article, no provision of the NLRA restricts an employer's bargaining obligation only to unions that have been certified through the NLRB's representation election process. Okay, so the NLRA says... Employers have to bargain with the bargaining representative of the workers choosing. So if a majority of workers choose a bargaining representative, they choose to form a union, you have to recognize that. And the NLRA does not say that it in, it can only be unions who are certified through the NLRB election process. Okay? Does that make sense? Therefore, the board... The National Labor Relations Board, which is charged with the enforcement of the National Labor Relations Act, can order employers to bargain with a union that has not yet won an election, but proved their majority through other means, like authorization cards. So what we've got here is an obligation of the company to bargain with a union, but no clear means set out in the NLRA um, by which to prove that the union represents a majority of the employees. And that is where Joy Silk comes in. In the, uh, in the Joy Silk case, the National Labor Relations Board held that from the article uh, that Brandon Magna wrote, an employer would violate Section 8A5 and be ordered to bargain if it was presented with a union request for recognition and the employer did not possess a good faith doubt as to the union's majority status when it refused to recognize the union. Okay, so if a union comes forward with authorization cards saying, we have a majority, we request your recognition, and we request that you bargain with us. Joy Silk held that if the employer did not have a good faith reason to doubt the majority, that they would have to bargain. And so they were called bar Joy Silk bargaining orders when this happened. Um, and, and so then the question arises, how do you determine if the doubt is good faith? The Joy Silk Doctrine put forward this test. One, 
if there was some verbal, written, etc., you know, explicit expression, if there was an explicit expression that they did not doubt the majority status, then they did not have a good faith doubt. Okay, so if if you you know if you're able to find an email or you have a phone log or a text message or a recorded conversation, and the employer says something to the effect of like, oh yeah, I just you know like they just admit that yeah the union probably has a majority, the union has a majority, but I just want this time to try to try to propagandize my workers. Okay, that's not a good faith doubt. You have to recognize and bargain with the union. Okay, the second test is if an employer refuses recognition, and then commits unfair labor practices. Because, under the Joy Silk Doctrine, the committing of unfair labor practices over the course of an election is proof that you do not actually have a good faith doubt that they represented a majority, because you are willing to break the law to convince your workers to not join the union. Okay, does that make sense? So we've got two tests for the good faith, for for whether or not they have a good faith doubt. And that's it. You can refuse recognition and then commit ULPs. You don't have a good faith doubt. Or if you explicitly say you don't have a good faith doubt. So what the bosses are going to tell you, what the right wing media are going to tell you, if they talk about this at all, they're going to say that this is simply card check. This is a backdoor means to get card check. But I just made laid out the mechanism by which an employer can push an election if they really feel that the cards are suspect or if they just like that formality. Don't break the law. Refuse recognition and don't break the law. And you will not be ordered to bargain with a union that has not won an election. That's all you got to do. Don't violate your workers' right to organize and you will have a secret ballot election if that's what you want. In effect, what this law did, as opposed to making card check rampant, is that it gave teeth to the board and gave bosses a real, an actual incentive not to break the law. That's what it did. That's the actual effect that it had. It did not institute card check. It, uh, uh, and we can just look at the data for that. Brandon Magner said on Twitter that in the 20 years that Joy Silk was the official national labor policy governing requests for recognition, NLRB certifications based on card majorities rather than secret ballot elections peaked at a whopping 3.6% in 1968. That means that that is the most ever in one year, the most ever in one year, NLRB certifications of unions that came from card check was in 1968 at 3.6%. That means even after 20 years of this being the official law of the land, at that point, 96.4% of of certifications came through a secret ballot election. 96%. Of elections, of certifications of unions under the Joy Silk Doctrine was in secret ballot elections. Okay, so what that's what Joy Silk that is what Joy Silk did. Instead of being a backdoor to card check, it prevented the widespread use of ULPs. We can also see, if we look at the data, we can see an immediate and enormous rise following the elimination of Joy Silk 
of ULPs. They increased several fold, like three or four times more after the elimination of the Joy Silk Doctrine. Employers began firing workers, began discriminating against pro-union workers, began lying to their workers, began threatening workers, in all in violation of labor law. That's what actually happened. So doing this, having a Joy Silk Doctrine, that prevented the widespread use of ULPs, and that paved the way for more secret ballot elections, not less. The last year that Joy Silk was used, there were over four, uh, there were over 8,000 union elections in one year, compared to less than 1,000 in 2021. That's the actual record of what Joy Silk did. It paved the way for more elections, it curbed employer violations of the law, and it and it made it and it made the way for more secret ballot elections, not card check. Brian Petruska in the Santa Clara Law Review said this, and he said it really well. Quote, those who would suggest that Joyce Silk will reduce the number of secret ballot elections have it exactly backwards. It was the abandonment of the Joy Silk Doctrine and the adoption of Gazelle that has massively reduced secret ballot collective bargaining elections in this country. The board's experience with Joy Silk, therefore, shows that Joy Silk had no effect of limiting elections. To the contrary, Joy Silk is necessary to provide a sufficient level of protection to make more numerous elections feasible. So there we go. That's Joy Silk. Any word on when we'll find out if the board will accept this? Uh, they're gonna uh, they're going to evaluate it in the CMEX case that she filed that brief in, uh, requesting that they reinstate the Joy Silk doctrine, and so. Um, Pro, I mean, I, it's probably going to be months before we right. see any any of this instituted. But there there are movements, and there is you know obviously there's worry about the Supreme Court striking it down because the Supreme Court already struck down Joy Silk in the seventies, I think, struck down Joy Silk in the sixties or the seventies. So there's worry that it would say no to this again. Uh, but let them do it. Right. That's let, not a reason not to yeah. try. Uh, let him do it. Let him make the case that uh, let him make the case that widespread use of unfair labor practices makes for more fair elections. I, I think it's I think it is important that the general counsel, the NLRB, is acknowledging that that in recent history, they have not been able to dissuade companies from breaking the law. Right. Uh, and I think it's it's well past time that they acknowledge that. I'm glad to see that. Hoping the board actually follows her lead on this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we've said it before, but uh, so far she appears to be one of the very few bright spots for yeah. labor to come out of the Biden administration. Uh, right, right. You know, sure. uh, it's it, it's been a, a pleasant surprise to see a much more uh, aggressive NLRB because after so many years of union busters being put Mm -hmm. on this board and straight up opponents of unions being uh, in charge, it is nice to see uh, someone with some some sense uh, and with a sense of history to try to get NLRB to do their job the way they were designed to do. 
Yeah. So we'll we'll see. We'll stay tuned on on how this pans out, but very promising. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I think unions across the country need to hear what she's saying and send her some test cases uh, on this and, and in other areas as well, like the captive right. audience meetings. Send her the test cases and, and at least pursue it. And if it gets struck down by reactionary judges, so be it. Uh, we get back to the drawing board, but I think it's worth pursuing regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's do one more story before we wrap here, um, and let's let's talk about Starbucks. And, I, and we had two more stories, but we're we're just going to push them off to next week, I think, because um, we are we're already at three hours. So we're just going to do this one more, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, so the day has arrived. Uh, we've got a group of workers unionizing at a Starbucks in downtown Birmingham, folks. Alabama yeah. is on the map. Roll tide. Yeah, roll. Last week, workers at the Starbucks location on 308 20th Street South in downtown Birmingham filed for an election. This is very exciting news, and I know that we're all looking forward to supporting them as they fight the boss. They filed for an election with a supermajority of the unit. So there was, you know, there's some amount, there was like 70-80% of people uh, w- w- had signed cards so this is like really 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 cool uh they're gonna win and we're gonna have a union starbucks in alabama um just a quick reminder about how you can support workers organizing organizing at starbucks in alabama and across the country from the workers themselves first don't boycott unless asked you weirdos uh <laughs> i mean i see a lot of this out there um, you know, and they think that like boycotting a company unsolicited is like the best thing that they can do for workers that are organizing there. And it's just simply not. Um, so like, I don't know what else to say about that. I'm not telling you to go to Starbucks necessarily. Like, I'm not telling you to change your consumption habits. If you go to Starbucks, um, then continue going. And if you don't, then don't start. I don't care. And they don't care. Um, but calling for a boycott absent the workers' leadership on this, it's just, it does not make sense. It is, it, it, it is disrespectful to the workers because it's like, you're saying that I know best how to help you when they, like, they know what a boycott is. They know how they can and can't be effective and, and helpful. And they'll call for one when, uh, they want one. And in fact, some stores have. Some stores have said, we are on strike. Some of these some of these stores across the country, some of these Starbucks locations, uh, the workers have actually gone on strike for a couple of days. And they've said, during this time, uh, please do not go inside and order a coffee while we are on strike. And so you uh, respect that and respect the fact that everywhere else, they're not calling for that. They're not calling for a nationwide boycott. So like, don't be weird about it. Um, at locations with a public union campaign, they have requested that you order your coffee slash food or whatever with a name like Union, Union Yes, Solidarity. You get the picture, right? Some sort of some sort of message like that. Uh, that, that that's how they want to. Um, that's what they want you to. Ha- uh, that way they can say you know Union when they're calling out. You know, they can say that on the clock. It's something fun, and it's something to show them that the community supports them. So that's something that you can do. At locations without a public campaign, however, do not do that. Do not do that. 
That would be weird. That would be weird. Rather, why would it be weird? Why is that ill-advised? Because if you go to a if you go to a location that does not have an active union campaign, all you do by doing public uh, public messages of union support in front of their management is alert them to the possibility of a union campaign and give management a head start in trying to bust the union um, and trying to do some anti-union propaganda type stuff. So, like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that um, if you are at a place without a public union campaign because you don't want to bring pressure to the workers that they are not ready for. You want them to be inoculated about what the boss is going to say, what the boss is going to do, before they actually have to face that pressure. Because that pressure is very scary, and uh, we don't want them to have to face that before they are prepped, before they are ready for it. We want them to know what's coming, and we want them to make that decision to go into that pressure themselves. We don't want to make that decision for them, okay? So don't do that. Don't be, like, publicly, like, union at a place without a public union campaign. Instead, what the union has asked you to do is quickly and quietly ask your barista if they have heard about what is going on, and if they're interested, give them the union's email, which is sbworkersunited at gmail.com. That is sbworkersunited at gmail.com. Give them that email. And don't do anything else different. Um, and yeah, so that and that's that is straight from the union. Like they have they have sent out a solidarity toolkit, and this is what. So I'm not like going out on a limb and telling you like best practices or what I think you should do. This is what I am relaying what the Starbucks baristas themselves have asked for you to do. So this is a really good way to support them in the way that they want to be supported. Um, not everybody is happy about this, though, about Alabama uh, baristas organizing their workplace like weird conservative uncles and libertarian debate bros. When I mentioned this on my Facebook, which I don't do often, I don't post to my Facebook often because Facebook is just like really a dumpster fire and people get their feelings hurt when you disagree with them and it becomes this big public spectacle. And I just, you know, I just, I just don't really do that very often. Um, I, uh, uh, I just don't really do that very often. So, um, but I did this time. I, I just said, I just said, yeah, you know, Starbucks workers are organizing this. That's pretty cool. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and like every like everything else that I post that is mildly political, I people were like de- trying to debate me in the comments section, uh, saying that to, like it was only two people, but still uh, saying that okay, oh no, a downward spiral at Starbucks is about to begin. Uh, that workers, not union busting consultants or executives, are parasites. That unions, not politicians or trade deals, killed Detroit because they artificially priced labor so high that it is cheaper to ship entire cars from another country. Wow. Okay. And so that's what was happening on my Facebook page. Um, and uh, it's bonkers. It's bonkers. These people are crazy. <laughs> 
Like, I, I mean, first of all, the down, you know, downward spiral begin. Like, there's no evidence to suggest that workers being organized is going to give you a worse product. Um, that just doesn't make sense. And in fact, we see the opposite in the trades. Uh, we see that UAW represented John Deere workers still make the best tractors in the country. Um, and, you know, the thing that people are going to point to most of the time is going to be the big three automakers. Uh, but, you know, guess who makes production decisions at the big three automakers? It's not the workers. They don't choose the steel. They don't draw up the specs. They don't uh, say the uh, what they're going to go through. You know, they, they just do they just produce the things that they're told to produce. Yeah, and, and so sometimes they produce crappy cars because that's the thing that they were given to produce. Well, and it's it's just common sense as well that you know Starbucks is like many service industry employers where it has extremely high turnover, and um, you know this rotating workforce might actually stay if they have a voice in their workplace if collectively. They can bargain a contract that has better pay and better benefits, better uh, mm-hmm. leave provisions, more reliable scheduling. Because, I, I mean, I, I know everyone loves to, to focus on wages and benefits, but it does go beyond that, uh, including preventing unjust firings, as we're seeing mm-hmm. Starbucks mm-hmm. do across the country. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Well, but and- if I have a voice in my workplace, if I have right. a method to, like – address my problems when problems arise if i can see there's a future there because we have a collective bargaining process i'm going to be more committed to the workplace and i would imagine that's the experience that we're seeing from baristas across the country and that's what they're telling us as well directly is hey it's not that we want to ruin starbucks or take them down no we want to actually improve starbucks and make it a better experience for everybody involved including the customers Right, right. Um, uh, Adam, can you bring the phone line back up? Joe was trying to call. In. Sure, yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know what was happening with that, but I will do my best. Yeah. Uh, also, they um, and 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 Joe, I, I figure you're probably still listening, so we're, we're we're trying to get that phone line. And were you able to figure out what the deal was with the YouTube as far as not being able to hear the caller? Were you able to figure that out with Ben? No, I, I'm not sure what that. What okay. that is about. Uh, so that's going to be one of those uh, after the show. We're going to have right, to just right, do some right. troubleshooting. Okay. Yeah, Ben, if you're um, if you're still listening, if you want to come back down and, and see if we can't get Joe on the line. Um, but yeah, and, and so another thing that he said was that, okay, so the reason that jobs have been outsourced um, is that uh, is that unions artificially <laughs> artificially priced labor so high that it is cheaper to ship entire cars from another country as opposed to trade deals that politicians push through incentivizing incentivizing uh companies doing that i love the word artificial as if you know yeah, there are they there, there's deserve. a natural way for right. wages to be set yeah. which of course they believe that the, the the market and the whims of private capitalists is in fact uh the the way the lord ordained it yeah, uh, yeah. and is just the natural state of society exactly exactly and, and and like the idea that that is the reason you know going against the natural order <laughs> as opposed to union or as opposed to politicians drafting up trade deals and 
sending, uh, incentivizing outsourcing and the uh, competition with countries who use what amounts to slave labor. Like, yeah, of course, you weird libertarian debate bro, uh, it's going to be cheaper to manufacture a car if you make a dollar an hour as opposed to what you should be making, like $30, $40, $50 an hour. Like, obviously that's cheaper, but that's not good. That's not a good enough reason to accept that as the way that we run our society. It's just simply not. It's simply not. It doesn't make sense to say that, to, to, to say that, oh, because I can manufacture a car in Mexico where people are going to die on the line every single day, people make uh, who knows how much, that that's what we should do. That's what we should. Oh, oh, you mean they use slaves in this country? Wow. It's amazing that American, American labor is, is pricing themselves out of you. Like, screw you, man. Screw you. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then the idea that workers are parasites. The people who are actually making the profits with which these consultants, uh, these union-busting lawyers, and these, and these executives are paid, the profits that they're paid from are coming from the uh, uh, they're coming from the labor of the baristas in shops all across the country. The idea that they're the parasites instead of the people who don't do any valuable work at all. I mean, just get a grip, man. Get it like come back to reality, my guy. It's just it's t- I mean, I'm total just brain rot. Here's the thing. Uh, if you took a Starbucks and you took the CEO out of the equation, you took the manager out of the equation, but you still had all the baristas, you still had all the coffee growers, you still had all the truck drivers, you could still have some coffee. Yep. Uh, reverse that scenario, you're not getting your damn coffee. Exactly. Uh, without the workers, there is nothing. Exactly. So, yeah, it is, it's, it's, you know, as, as William in the comments put, the brainwashing and propaganda does run incredibly deep, and we've seen, you know, what, four decades now of this kind of obsession with the market and with, uh, you know, glorifying greed and trying to convince ordinary people to identify with their own oppressors and exploiters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got Joe on the line. Joe is a listener from Decatur. Uh, he is a former union president and a former uh, steelworkers president. Longtime friend of the show. Longtime friend of the show. Longtime listener. Uh, Joe, thanks for calling in. What's up, man? Hey, Jacob. I just I just wanted to comment on uh, uh, the Tim James interview. Yeah, yeah. What was your, what, what did you think about that? Well, well. I don't, I don't think a whole lot of Republicans in the first place, but uh, I'm, my comment is more along the lines that the nut probably don't fall too far from the tree. Uh, back in the early 80s, we was on strike for eight weeks. Uh, Daddy Fob was the governor at the time. 
Now, of course, they was using state troopers to escort uh, workers in and out of the mill. Uh, sent about 200 state troopers out to the line uh, one one whole week. Now, I will admit that uh, the natives was getting restless and the uh, crowd was growing, union crowd. Uh, but they sent about 200, 200 troopers out there, including a helicopter flying over us. Uh, they was uh, complete right gear, shotguns, the whole 10 mile. Uh, so, so I don't know really what to think about Tim and uh, uh, what he would do for those workers at Brookwood. But uh, I wouldn't take a whole lot of faith in it if I was a mine worker right now. Uh, I do like I do like the fact that he did get on and and bring a little attention to the to the problem down there and maybe some of these politicians who's in office right now uh, uh, might pick up on it a little bit. But but like I say, I, I hope the mine workers really take a hard look at at any Republican first. But Tim Tim and the. Uh, uh, for governor, uh, just just his comment that he could solve it in one afternoon, uh, just just kind of falls back to me on Trump that uh, uh, I'm the only one that can fix this. But that's my comment, and I, right. I had one more thing. The lady Eve, who was was calling and complaining, uh, if some of these folks. Uh, would take their issues to the union hall and and they will get the floor i'm pretty sure uh and make it known what their complaints are if they're not such trivial problems i'm i'm pretty sure they'll get addressed but that's all i got y'all i appreciate it Hey, Joe, this is Adam here. I missed the first bit of your call. Could you just say briefly? He's, yeah, uh, he said what what he said about, um, he was talking about Tim James. He yeah. Said, he said that uh, Fob James, when he was on strike, he sent 200 state troopers with riot gear and, and shotguns to, to break up y'all's picket line when y'all were on strike in the 90s. Is it right? Is that what you said, Joe? In the 80s. 80s, 80s. during Fob's term. But, but yes. Okay. Uh, now, now, I'm glad you brought that uh, up. Yeah, well, after eight weeks of being on the picket line, and uh, we wasn't we we didn't have no two man uh, max that we could have out there. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of ten, but we had we had probably seven gates to man, you know, four seven. Uh, but folks was getting restless, you know, and they wanted to see some action, so so they was a call to action. Now it wasn't a call for violence, but but we did. We showed up in mass, probably probably three or four hundred union members uh, in the street, across the street, and uh, the troopers was called in in no time flat on us. And like I say, including the helicopter, you know. Uh, to to make sure we didn't get out of hand, uh, but but they was also using them troopers to uh, to uh, escort buses in and out with their with their uh, workers that they brought in to try to run that run that mill. They wasn't very successful, but but that's that's what I wanted to mention on that. And what mill was that? This was Cortland. Uh, okay, paper mill. 
That's right. That's right. Champion, champion papers at the time. Champion papers at the time. Uh, now, but I will say this: after we did rally out there in the street for couple three days uh they was back to bargaining table really quick wasn't no time flat that we had an offer and and uh it was accepted i ain't gonna say it was a great offer but it was accepted Hmm. Hmm. thank you so much for calling in and sharing that joke yeah i appreciate Uh, that's some really good context and i i wish that's a bummer i wish if we get him back on if if i interview him again like if if he wins the primary i'll I'll probably try to get him on again or if he goes into a runoff and um and i'll see what he has to say about that i would i would really be interested in his response but i love the local labor history yeah yeah, well, it's that fluke troop. I mean, I was there. I was a first-hand witness to it. Mm-hmm. I saw quite a few of our members go to jail that day, uh, throwing a rock, getting a little too close to the troopers. You know, just different things got them to jail. But, but in the end, in the end, uh, the local bailed everybody out, and when it was time to go to court, all the court, all the charges was dropped. Nobody wound up getting fined or going to court or anything else. So, all worked out in the long run. Right. But I won't keep y'all guys. Uh, I may leave you a message on the on the line after the show's over. So something I wanted to mention from last week's show, but I ain't gonna I ain't gonna hog it all up. So uh, I'll get off here and get back to listening to you. All right. Well, I think Joe. I think this is going to be it for us. I, I appreciate you calling in, and, and maybe we can uh, we can talk about that other other thing on on next week's show. Appreciate you listening. Thanks for calling in. All right. See y'all. Bye bye. All right. Yeah, so folks, so that's going to be it for us on the on the show today. Uh, we went a little bit longer than normal, but uh, but I think it was a good show. Yeah, I uh, just wanted to put it out there for anyone who is like Joe, who has some some local labor history to share with us. If you've been in a strike in the past, if you had family members, you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, anybody who was involved in labor actions here in North Alabama in particular, that's something that we're both really interested in. We love mm-hmm. to hear about. Um, you know, previous actions, because I think the the labor history in Alabama has been dramatically suppressed in this state. And most folks don't know that we've had unions here in Alabama uh, as long as there's been unions. And we've had strikes. We've had boycotts. We've had uh, organizing campaigns. You name it. It's all happened right here in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, much more so than other places in the South. Right. Uh, so... Love to get that history uh, in, and just want to put that call out there to anybody listening. Uh, if you have some local labor history, would love, love to hear, to about, hear it. about it. Uh, in particular, one thing I'm researching uh, would be the uh, Scottsboro teacher strike from about 40 years ago or so. Uh, uh, I'm blanking on the year right now, but late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I know that's kind of in our neck of the woods. And I don't have a lot of sources on that yet, but uh, do you know anyone out out in the Scottsboro area who was involved in that? Would love to hear from them. Uh, but really, anything like that, we it's it's right up our alley. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so that's going to be it for us. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air um, or buy our new hat, as we're going out, let, let, let's show them that hat for a little bit. It's really cool, yeah. uh, Adam. Um, or make a one-time or a recurring donation. You can do all that on our website, tvlr.fm. tvlr.fm. Um, share 
the stream, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, subscribe to our podcast, rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all these other places. Um, and uh, don't forget to review on your podcasting app of choice. Make sure you like the stream if you're listening to us live. If you would like to leave, leave us a voicemail like Joe is going to, share your thoughts on the contents of today's episode, ask us a question, share with us some local labor history, uh, some ways that you are winning with your coworkers, a bad boss story, anything at all like that. Leave us a message. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. 844-899-8857. Um, Adam, did we have any plugs that you wanted to make sure that we got before we left? Yes, I do have a couple of plugs. Uh, some from the past couple of weeks that I wanted to bring back up and also a couple of new ones. So I want to start with the new ones first and uh, make sure folks are aware of these opportunities. Uh, the first one I'm going to share is from our great friends labor notes they have a stewards workshop on grievance handling focused on the worst practices for grievances uh, and that is thursday april 21st that'll be seven o'clock central time online uh, the workshop will be led by veteran unionist and labor educator richard devry from teamsters local 705 uh, gonna look a little bit about uh, mistakes how you can learn from your mistakes and grievances, how to follow a grievance from beginning to end, uh, looking at the investigations, the hearing, and how uh, arbitration works. So that is like really practical nuts and bolts kind of information that if you are getting involved in a union uh, or you are looking at maybe becoming a steward yourself or running mm -hmm. for a union office, great opportunity. So check that out. Um, more locally, uh, there were two local events that I wanted to add to our plugs this week. First is uh, from our friends at Alabama Rise. Some of you may know the Alabama Legislature's 2022 session just wrapped up on April 7th, and Alabama Rise is going to do a virtual uh, debriefing on Tuesday, April 19th at 6 p.m., to share what happened during the session, uh, as well as the next steps to keep moving the vision for a better Alabama forward. Uh, so again, that's Tuesday, April 19th, 6 o'clock. Go to Alabama Rise's website, A-L-A-R-I-S-E dot org slash 2022 session wrap. You'll find a link to the Zoom. You'll get a confirmation email uh, to let you know you're in there. So that should be really good. Uh, I'm interested in hearing uh, kind of in one place what all happened with the session. We've been covering certain bills. Uh, there's things that they've covered that we haven't. So should be a good opportunity and uh, really respect what they do uh, down in the state house. Yeah. And uh, the other new local event I wanted to plug, uh, also friends of the show, the United Women of Color Book Club. Uh, a lot of the people involved with the Citizens Coalition for Justice Reform here in Huntsville who have been fighting the good fight against uh, criminal injustice and fighting for police reform. So they're having a virtual meet and greet with Dr. Ed Bridges uh, on April 26th, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. It's online. Uh and they are actually going to be diving into Ed Bridges' book, Alabama, The Making of an American State. But you don't have to read the book to participate. 
you can uh, just check it out online. Uh, and so Ed Bridges was actually the director of the Alabama Department of Archives and History for 30 years. And um, so that's that's kind of a – he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the state of Alabama and how we got to where we're at. And we need to know that to know where we're going. So – I appreciate that the United Women of Color is hosting that event. should be really interesting and informative. That's April 26, 6 p.m. You can check out uh, United Women of Color's Facebook page if you want to get more information. And uh, the last couple of things, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, just a reminder, this afternoon is the Voter Services Drive that the League of Women Voters is doing. Uh, and that's at the North Huntsville Public Library on Sparkman. And uh, we still are wanting to share the music for mechanics that is happening Sunday, April 24th at uh, 1 p.m. through 8.30 p.m. Uh, that's the really cool event that's going to be at the Stove House here in Huntsville, live streaming by our, uh, our friend Spice Radio here in Huntsville. And it is to benefit the free automotive clinic up here. So a great cause, great music, great food. If you have something, uh, if you don't have anything going on that weekend, if, if you want to get out and about, uh, if you want to check out some music or just, you know, meet some activists and organizers and, and have some community. That sounds like a really great way to do that. And uh, our friend Daniel Tate from Energy Alabama, just a reminder, he is going to be on a panel hosted by the League of Women Voters on the environment, specifically the climate crisis in Alabama, as well as renewable energy solutions. That is Tuesday, May 3rd at 6.30 p.m. So, a lot of really cool events coming up uh, in the community. Several of them are online, so if you can't get out or don't want to get out, you can still participate. And uh, if you or your organization has any events coming up that you think would be relevant to working-class people here in this community, then just let us know, and we'll be happy to put the word out and, and try to share. Yep. Uh, aside from that, I just want to wish everyone a happy Easter and uh, a safe Easter and uh, way to go, Starbucks workers in Birmingham. There you happy go. to see you in uh, in Alabama carrying the torch for us. So, yeah. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week. <laughs>